Welcome to the Health Humanities Podcast. Our mission is to facilitate interdisciplinary thinking and creative work related to illness, caregiving, and medicine. I'm Elizabeth Coletti, the Editor-in-Chief of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill, and this episode we'll hear from Alexander Benedict, who's majoring in English and Comparative Literature with a minor in German. We'll start with hearing him read his poem, This Dull Circle of Porcelain. We hope you enjoy. This dull circle of porcelain, content warning, graphic depiction of bulimia. Stuttering. Can you hold my hair back? Lifting the flimsy plastic seat, collecting short black hair behind your ears, over ridges of your spine, pushing my fingers through your roots. Gently, the tile floor is cold against our knees, against our eyes whispering. The reeds give way to wind and give the wind away. The reeds give way to wind and give the wind away, teeth rattling. Shoving middle and forefinger through your throat, shaking, skin molting, puking into this dull circle of porcelain. The surrogate altar filling with clumps of oatmeal, fruit loop puree and splinter jaron phrases. This is an act of forgetting. Marinara and half-digested word fragments. This is an act of remembering. Stomach acid coating pink gums shedding. Shoulders swaying. Squeezing my wrist, slumping over the foam marble sink. Washing your face. Pouring out a half cap of Listerine. Tilting your jaw to fluorescence, gurgling spitting out the remaining taste of your insides into the circle of dull porcelain. Reciting, the reeds give way to wind and give the wind away. The reeds give way to wind and give the wind away. You can read that poem on our website with the rest of the fall issue. Thank you for joining me today, Alexander. Of course, thanks for having me. So from discussions in editing this poem, I do know that it's nonfiction. Are you okay with sharing a little of what inspired this piece? Definitely, thank you. I started to write this poem about a summer ago, living for a couple weeks with um, my girlfriend up in their home in Ontario, New York. And I started to write it after a particularly bad um, occurrence with bulimia and I just felt like I wanted to learn from it and sort of not just toss it away somewhere in my head and try to forget about it. I hope this poem engages with it in a way that's not not speaking for her and also not speaking as the observer either but somewhere between between me and her. And do you get that sense of the voice in the poem as trying to help, trying to understand, and also this huge sense of of empathy from witnessing this difficult eating disorder. So I'm curious what your writing process was like to get to the poem in the state that we read it. Yeah, it's it's been through plenty of revisions, dozens of revisions. I, when I first wrote it, um, I'd say it didn't look anything like this um, content-wise or on the page either from what was published in the journal this past fall. 
the poem was written in my phone notes later that night, and I'd say it was probably just the first stanza there and parts of the last stanza, uh, or rather parts of the last uh, stanza omitting the last little refrain from A.R. Amens. About a week or so after I made my phone notes, there was a contest for the Miami Museum. The topic was circles, and so I aimed the title at that and wanted to really work with the form of a circle in this piece. And although a toilet seat or a toilet bowl isn't necessarily fully circular, I did like the concreteness and simplicity of just like a dull circle of porcelain and mentioning it later in the poem as an altar felt like an important jump for me because it's making this very like commercialized and absent object something holy and something that's worth talking about and I want to do the same thing for a lot of familiar things bringing them to be some kind of object to have a conversation with rather than think apart from. There's also something about sacrifice wrapped into using that word altar that I think also gets at the just the harshness of this bulimic experience. When I was moving to Southern Ohio for university, I was I, I, I attended Miami University my first year of college. I went back and looked at the poem and I wanted to submit it to the local university magazine Inklings at Miami University. And so I spent some more time with it for a couple weeks, just seeing what I had and what I could do with it. And I really wanted to omit the speaker from it. And so that's why I don't really mention an I in the poem at all. And I didn't want it to be some kind of past, you know, a past event that's already happened, but something that is carried forward. And that's why I used a lot of gerunds in the original phrasing. And so I kept it that way rather than putting it in the past tense. But in revising it for Inklings, I was reading some poems from one of my intro to poetry classes and found this one poem, very short poem by R.R. Amens, which is called Small Song. And it's also included um, at the bottom of the poem as a citation. And that's the refrain that's in between both of the stanzas that are there right now. But what I, what I found interesting about that poem, and it doesn't necessarily seem directly connected to the rest of the piece, but what we get is two sort of subjects in that poem, the reeds and the wind. And they're sort of engaging with each other, the reeds giving way to the wind, but also sort of showing that the wind is actually there. Um, and if the reeds weren't there, you wouldn't be aware of the wind. So it's that superposition of the two ways of looking at what's going on there with the reeds and the wind that was really interesting with me. And I really thought that there was a similar sort of tension going on with bulimia and other related eating disorders and how they work counterintuitively. And so that's why I included it there. Plus, I felt that that little poem was really relaxing to read as well. So it was sort of like a, a hymn for me. And it felt like a good resting point between both of those sort of heavy stanzas. Yeah, it does bring this really beautiful lyricism to the poem when it's contrasted with all of these visceral, kind of very difficult descriptions. Like you were saying, keeping this poem feeling in the present, all of those images do very much do that. You can't escape them. You do feel like you're in that moment. 
it's like the sense of keeping the moment forward. You know, it's not like the moment is something that we've experienced and it's just back there. And that also comes along with the sort of tension between remembering and forgetting that I bring up in the poem. So I was going to bring that up because along with all of this grounded imagery, you have a few phrases that are less literal. You have the half-digested word fragments and then saying both, this is an act of forgetting and then this is an act of remembering. Can you speak a little more to what you meant by that? I started reading um, accounts of bulimia and ways that people express their experience with bulimia. And so I was doing a short research paper on it during one of my uh, classes at UNC, or no, rather at Miami. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept um, seeing people describe their experience as forgetting particular things in their lives and trying to deal with it by eating, but also the eating sort of functioning as a way to remind them that they are um, that they're like a body. Mm -hmm. I wanted to put that contradiction in there because the disorder and all this, you know, most disorders are contradictions of action, trying to engage with something that's not being directly expressed. The episode that was right before this, I talked with Katie Vergitko, whose piece is also about an eating disorder. In that one, they were talking about the actions of an eating disorder that to an outside eye look obviously self-destructive, but then from the person's own perspective, it is the thing that they're trying to do to fix the hurtful thoughts in their own head. That was a bit of a tangent, but I think that that is really interesting that you see that similar idea presented in these two separate pieces from separate people. It was um, something that definitely was expressed by almost everybody that I, I, I read interviews on, and I was also able to get an interview from one of my teachers about their um, experience with it as well. And they echoed a very similar thought of how they were being sort of ordered in the public space and eating as being something very private and being able to have any sort of freedom in that interior space and eating in the home away from the public. You can express freedoms that might seem destructive to others in the public space, but are just ways of dealing with how the public space is ordered, maybe ordered against you. So something that I hope and I think does come through in your reading in the recording is the structure of this poem, how in the print copy you spaced out the words and the lines very intentionally. Uh, what was your reason behind making that choice? I am a big fan of Sejira. I think I didn't want to have any punctuation in the piece because I just wanted it to feel sort of formless and continuous. Yeah. And I do think after reading it here and reading it before for other people as well, it definitely feels like it's it's at home and sound much more than it is on the page. But yeah. in trying to put it on the page, I wanted there to be moments of rest and I wanted it to look a bit tune up on the page. And I think ending a lot of the lines with the gerunds keeps a lot of the movement going, but it also puts emphasis on those verbs of motion or emotion that's stuck as well. So are there any other topics related to the health humanities that you've touched on in your own writing? Yeah, plenty. I think one of the most memorable things I've written starting in the summer deals with just how harsh some of the weather conditions can be on the body, the body of um, a friend of mine, a homeless friend of mine, in Carborough, one of the only friends I've made in Carborough <laughs> or at the university this year because it's been difficult to meet lots of people. That piece will be published by a friend of mine that I met in one of my online writing communities. But yeah, and there's also aspects of 
how architecture can be really destructive or really imposing on our bodies and our and our subjectivity. Living in an apartment for the first time this year has been really odd for me, and I still find lots of the cracking paint and weird crease lines of silicone just odd, how the cabinets fall apart, <laughs> and seeing fake brick, you know, fake plastic brick around the department community. One of the things I'm, one of the collections I'm writing currently is on post-it notes, and it's all about rooms and how rooms can sort of domesticate us, uh, similar to how I know some people in the agricultural industry talk about how corn and other foods have domesticated us in a way. Mm -hmm. So definitely health related to architecture is something I'm very interested in. I'm also very interested in Buddhism, and one of my largest projects I'm hoping to get a surf grant on for the summer is writing on Buddhism and writing practices as a meditative act. And a lot of those meditative poems engage with other texts that have a lot of anxiety within them, like one of my favorite poets, D.A. Levy from Cleveland. Did you have any other favorite poets? For sure. Another large one just sitting in front of me on this desk is Paul Salon, <laughs> one of the German poets who wrote a lot about post-war Germany and writing and reading through his poems. This semester and last semester has been really fulfilling, not just for my German as, a, as somebody trying to be a German speaker, yeah. but also engaging with thinking about how my language, you know, what's my relation to my language and how can I change my language? And I think that's one of the jobs of the poet is to examine their language they're working with and make it something different. Because I think that's what he struggled with in lots of his later poems. As the translator, Pierre Joris, talks about, he's writing with a language of death, a language that the Nazis used to murder many of his friends and family. And I want to work through my own language in a similar way, because there are genocides occurring right now, not just human genocides, but also animal genocides. That's so interesting how you're reaching across completely disparate areas, you know, going from architecture to different languages and all of these different issues to bring it together and still look at everything through how are we as humans dealing with it. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. Thank you. And it does feel a bit odd jumping from a lot of these different authors, but I think it's one of the most fun things for me is to see where these people who have never met each other seem to agree and seem to be concerned with things that they haven't talked about, but it's integral to their life work, similar issues. I was actually going to perform this piece at a conference at Miami, mm -hmm. and then COVID hit and the conference was canceled. So I was really looking forward to performing that, and I think this opportunity gave me, gave me that lost opportunity um, back. So I really appreciate you having me. Thanks. Well, I'm very glad that we could make this happen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find Alexander's poem and the rest of the Health Humanities Journal's Fall 2020 issue on our website linked in the show notes, or go to hhj.web.unc.edu. The music you're hearing now and at the top is from Andy G. Cohen. Thanks again to Alexander for coming to talk with me, and be sure to watch for our next episode to hear more from the authors of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill.